HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Fine Diners Over 40, a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio on this weekly journey through culinary history. And you know, noodles seem to be everywhere, called by many different names. Spaghetti, kluski, noodles, spatzel, udon, ramen, soba, mipak, chow mein, I could go on and on, or could my guest. So many shapes, so many sizes, sauced or in soups, it seems every culture has a noodle. And myths and facts about when and where noodles were first made abound. The Chinese may have a very long history with noodles, and the Italians claim that they've always had pasta from ancient Roman times. The Lebanese say they've always had some type of a wheat-made, wheat-paste noodle. And then, of course, there's the well-known story of Marco Polo introducing the noodles to Italy from his travels in China. Truth or faction? Where did noodles first appear? Did they have a single origin? Or did they appear concurrently in kitchens around the globe? And how have they changed? To help us through this tangle of spaghetti strands, I've invited food historian, author, educator, and intrepid cook, Ken Albala, to join me today to shed some light on this tangle of noodle history. Ken is a professor of history and food studies at the University of the Pacific in California. He's the author of more than a dozen books and edited, I think, probably as many more, including Three World Cuisines, Italian, Mexican, Chinese, co-author of The Lost Art of Real Cooking, 
He was on the show for that. We can search that out. The Food History Reader. Yep, he was back again for that. And several other history books, which he's been back again to talk about. I love it, Ken. You can answer any question. As well as three books on the Global History Series. He blogs at kenalbala.blogspot.com. And his newest book, hmm, perhaps maybe that's why I called him, is Noodle Soup. Recipes, Techniques, and Obsession by the University of Illinois Press. If anyone can help us find the origins of the noodle, it's Ken. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's so good to talk to you again. You too. I, I'm afraid I can't tell you about the origin of the noodle, though. <laughs> it's, well, there's, it's, I mean, there's linguistic evidence and there's some archaeological evidence. Um, the historical record is really not forthcoming. Um, but I think, you know, your instinct in saying that there were probably independent origins everywhere there was some kind of grain that you could make a roll into a noodle if it was wheat or extrude into a noodle if it were millet or rice starch or something. Um, I'm pretty sure that there are noodles um, pretty much everywhere <laughs> where you find some kind of grain. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I know it's sort of a murky history, probably in large part because the noodle does go back so far before there was written history, written evidence. Sure. I mean, theoretically, there could be noodles before wheat was even domesticated. You could be gathering wild grains and pound them up and suddenly say, oh, look, these, this stuff is sticking together. Let's cl- make little lumps of it and toss it in the pot with the, um, with the boiling meat. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no reason noodles can't be you know, prehistoric. Right, right. And in fact, you um, you gave a lecture, uh, was it one of the great lecture series or, uh, for the Getty Institute? And uh, you were describing a terrific old um, illuminated illumination from some manuscript. And tell us a little bit about what you, what your hypothesis was for that picture. You know, I don't remember which picture oh, you're referring I'm sorry. to, but there, I'm sorry. there are a lot of illustrations of people making noodles. Right. Um, it was Joseph. One that's okay. Medieval, where there are people hanging them on a rack. Yes. Um, yes. And they're they're called various things. I mean, that's that's um, in Europe. They're usually called something related to the word itria, which comes from Greek and makes its way through Arabic and then makes it to Italy, where they call them trilli or tria or something like that. Um, and it just means strings, basically. So, uh-huh. so they definitely have something like that. Um, and it's recorded, you know, by the, like, 13th century or so. Right. Uh, the, the, the picture that I was referring to was Joseph stirring some sort of pot over an oh, open fire. Yes, <laughs> that one. Well, there's, there's um, these kind of noodles that, that we might think of it more of as a dumpling, but it's actually pressed out, um, called pasatelli, mm-hmm. which is like a dough made of breadcrumbs and eggs. And you take this long, um, you take this sort of perforated disc, and you press it down on them, and you get these long worm-like, they sort of look like pasta, and you throw that right into soup. And what I thought was, um, you can't really tell what's in the pot, but it <laughs> looks very much like it. And pasatelli were one of those things that were always recommended for women after childbirth, because it was... Um, you know, uh, restorative, and the broth was easy to digest, and you had eggs in there, and uh, and bread was considered very nutritive also. So I sort of speculated that in the picture, Joseph is making up a dish of this for Mary right after she's given birth. Aha, uh-huh, I see. Certainly look like worms floating around in, a, yeah, in it does. some liquid, yeah, totally. right? Yeah, and it's interesting, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure as well, that um, pasatelli are still very popular in um, certain parts. I mean, it was, it was 
cucina povera. It was, you know, poor food because it was a good way to use up leftover bread, stale bread. That's right. Mm. And, you know, you never throw away bread. Um, And all you really need is an egg or sometimes bone marrow is added to it, which is Mm. absolutely delicious, or a grated cheese. And I think it's really easy to do also if you have what what in Italian is, I think my favorite word is scacciapatata, which is is this lovely, it's like a a ricer, basically, you know, or but you don't use it for rice, you use it for potatoes to make, um, but you can, if you have one with wide holes in it, you can actually put the dough right in there and, and extrude it directly into the water, and it takes a second. Wow, you know that's a I I'm gonna dig out my potato ricer for uh, for that, and maybe some spetzel too. I think that would work with that. Probably. It does work, mm. you know. And spetzle, you can make hard. you know a million different ways. Um, that they have those, uh, you know, the traditional ways to take a board and put the the batter directly onto it, and then scrape it off with a flat edge spatula into the water, mm-hmm. which is really easy to do. I don't know why people don't do it that way, but they also have these sort of um, metal tracks where you pour the batter in, and then you move this little little uh, container backward and forward, and it drops these little noodle shapes into the water. But you know, the easiest way to do this is you take a, a Ziploc bag, mix the dough batter directly into the bag, snip off the end, and then just you know squeeze the bag into the water. It's simple. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Great. Um, what about the story of Marco Polo? Um, any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I've tried to find the place in his um, book where he would have spoken about that. And I think that he says, he does mention um, noodles at some point, basically saying that they are like the ones that we have back at home. But a big deal was made of this by a marketing agency in, uh, I think, the late 30s or early 40s. And they basically said, Marco Polo brought back noodles to Italy, which yeah. of course he didn't. <laughs> it was exactly the opposite. Um, there's records of noodles long before Marco Polo in Italy. Right. Um, but it made a great story and everyone wanted to believe it. And, you know, like fake lore, it just gets repeated over and over again. Right. And I'm sure he did have tales about different types of noodles, and that, but not, not Yeah, I mean, there are people who doubt Marco Polo even went to China. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's, that part is, you know, um, there's things that make people doubt. Because, um, yeah. you know, there's a story recorded, you know, in prison, I think, years later. Hmm. Well, um, I have, you know, I, I spoke about um, different... Uh, different types of noodles, um, you know, in different cultures. There are also, we think, you know, it's just, I I use the title noodle, but of course, mm, noodle, it can be not necessarily what people think of noodle, like a ramen noodle or a pasta noodle, noodle noodles. Noodles, you know, could become, as you just mentioned, you know, there's spetzel, there's uh, passatelli, there's dumplings, there's all kinds of things. I mean, I I didn't try too hard to define it, because I think, you know, it sounds stupid, but if you say, you know, if you look at something and ask someone, what is that? And they say, it's a noodle, then it's a noodle. You know, <laughs> right. like a, a matzo ball doesn't count, even though it's made of the same ingredients as Positelli, yeah. basically. Yeah. Uh, but I think anything that's, you know, a shape made of dough um, that you boil in water, that's a noodle, you know? Um, I would not call zucchini, you know, made in a spiralizer a noodle. That's, yeah. that's, that's heresy. <laughs> right. It is a noodle shape, <laughs> right? It's right. not a noodle. Right. Well, and that brings me to another big um, topic, and which we will, in this later, we'll get into even deeper with what you've experienced, experimented with. But that is noodles and the difference, the different ingredients that make up noodles. Um, East, West, both East and West have a lot of different ingredients that they use to make their noodles. 
what were some of the and then there's this old picture that um, you know is floating around from National Geographic of the four thousand year old noodle found in China in some Chinese archaeological dig. That's right. Those are made of foxtail millet, um, which uh, presumably there was like an earthquake or something like this around 2000 BC in Lajia, uh, in what's now China. Uh, and this bowl of noodles, probably soup, because there were soup ingredients apparently around also, turned over and was preserved and buried in the rubble. And they dug this out not that long ago. Um, I think like maybe even less than 20 years ago, and overturned it and looked at it and said, oh my goodness, these are noodles, and took a couple of pictures, and they disintegrated immediately. And I think there are people who doubt the veracity of the whole story, um, partly because they couldn't keep the, you know, the noodles didn't survive, but also they tried to make noodles out of millet, and no one could do it, because they were trying to roll it out and make it like a wheat dough, Mm -hmm. and of course it doesn't have the gluten to hold it together. So... um, what they didn't think, you know, simply is that you have to extrude it. You'd make a dough and then push it through something like that ricer that we spoke about right. um, directly into the water and not try and work them on a board. Um, and that's true of many kinds of noodles. You know, there's there are noodles like, um, you know, most starch noodles, you can't, they're really difficult to work if you put them on a board. So, but you can make starch out of anything. You can make it out of rice or wheat or arrowroot or um, sweet potato, you know, basically anything that's got starch in it, you soak that and you can get the starch out and then make a noodle out of it. Uh, but you really need an extruder to do that well. And people think, oh, you know, I think most people are happy making noodles, you know, with those old crank machines and or even rolling them out. But they don't realize you can make noodles out of pretty much anything. Hmm. Uh, and in your book, Noodle Soup, I know that you have experimented with just about anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty I, I, much I went anything. a little overboard. I, I, admit, <laughs> I tried to get um, basically anything on earth into a noodle, but I think the one that worked really well, the technique, uh, and you know, I'm not prone to using machines, and I generally like to do everything by hand, but I, but I have a dehydrator, and I thought, let me put vegetables in the dehydrator, and then, you know, cut up in very thin slices, dehydrate them, and then grind them, and see how much I can get into a noodle, just because I think, you know, when you find, like, carrot and spinach noodles and those things, they sort of vaguely taste a little bit like it. It's really color. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, put a wet spinach into a noodle, there's really not so much you can get in. If you use a powder, um, you can do about 50-50% flour to spinach and then, you know, moisten it with an egg to, to bind the whole thing. And it's this intense, intense flavor. So, like, kale, I've used uh, dandelions from the yard in it. I've put in artichokes fava beans. Um, in fact, I did a whole salad made out of noodles, which uh, made out of, um, you know, dehydrated uh, salad ingredients. <laughs> so hmm. lettuce and cucumbers and tomatoes and carrots, did them all separately, put them all into noodles and then, you know, um, made a, a noodle soup. That <laughs> was really a salad. And it tasted like a salad, which was kind of amazing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. that, and I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by that because if anyone's ever tried to Make a noodle with you know with the green color with spinach or or red or pink for Valentine's Day, which passed not long ago for um, you know pink pasta. You know that it just then you can't add a whole lot because as you said, it just turns the mush. And yeah, yeah. this and is I think, this and is. I don't want to use you know um, food coloring. I just think that yeah. defeats the point. It's just a bright color. And, but the one, but there are some things that are really kind of amazing that give you colors. Um, one is um, the, uh, a pea. Uh, it's a blue. 
uh, butterfly pea flower, which I've used recently. It's actually not in the book. This is, I did this experiment recently. Um, a friend suggested it, and I ground them up directly and put it in there. It's a really strange flower. It has the, the very curious name Clitoria ternatia, <laughs> because apparently the botanist thought that's what it looks like, so it has a dirty name. Um, but it's blue, and it has this vibrant, vibrant blue color, which is really hard to get in if you put it in a noodle. But if you add acid to it, it changes the color. So oh, it's wow. kind of like litmus paper, you know, yeah. which is really, really interesting. Just like a hydrangea, right? Put, yeah. put a little more acid or, in there. Or um, you could do that with, with um, purple cabbage also. I did do oh, that yeah. in, the, in the book where I put, I sort of ground up dried purple cabbage, put it in the noodle, and then you put drops of lime juice, it turns one color. You put drops of baking soda, it turns another color. Wow. It, it, these are fun experiments. I, yeah, I they, were, they were fun. <laughs> I think the one that, that I'm most proud of, and, I, and I'm kind of sorry maybe I didn't patent it, but this is a noodle you make in the microwave. And I don't like microwaves in general, but, but this is really easy to do. If you have like a mat, you just um, take an extruder with a batter, like a rice flour noodle, mm-hmm. and um, make long strings out of it, microwave it for about a minute, and then scoop those and put them in boiling water. And it's much, much quicker than steaming the whole thing or cutting it by hand. This is just takes a minute to make. Wow. So you cut them into strings before you put them in the microwave? No, you don't cut them at all. You oh. just you extrude these long strings oh, of batter them, yeah. right onto the mat, microwave it, and that dries it, pre-cooks it, so it will hold together. And then you have dried noodles, and you put those into the boiling water. Oh, it won't fall apart, yeah. I'm always amazed that um, the machine-made or however they're made, you know, dried rice noodles hold up so incredibly well that they don't break down. It's... Um, uh, amazes me every time I cook. Yeah, and you know, I, I mean, for people who don't have access to an Asian grocery store where they carry all of these different starches, you can really make starch out of anything. As I said, if you take flour, regular flour, and make a dough out of it, knead it really well, and then take that whole dough and put it in water, and then start kneading, you, the starch will, will come out of it and sink to the bottom. And what you have left of these little globs of gluten, it's called a liang pea, actually, um, makes a wonderful vegan meat substitute you know, made out of flour. And then you pour the water off, and you've got the starch at the bottom that you can make noodles out of. So it's like, like from a cup of flour, you can make an entire dish, which is really amazing. Right. Uh, what, so in your definition, what, in your terms and having experimented, what, defines a noodle? Oh, gosh. Um, anything that is starch or, or a grain-based that is boiled and eaten, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> that, that is long, narrow, hollow. I mean, obviously, they can come in many different shapes, but I think you kind of have to make it out of a grain, uh-huh. um, you know, just to hold it together, because other things really don't. Um, you know, but having said that, that it doesn't really mean you can't put other things into it. I mean, the the craziest thing that I experimented with, partly because it became fashionable, and I met some people uh, growing crickets, and I thought, ooh, let me try a cricket and see what it does in a noodle. And um, as I was using it, this really strange, familiar, funky aroma started <laughs> to come out of the out of the ground cricket flour and regular flour made into a dough. And then I said, oh, now I know where this is. It's pet shop smell. Oh. Like that really horrible oh. odor that you smell in a pet shop. It's the crickets that they feed to the oh. reptiles, I assume. Um, and it was disgusting. It was, oh. out. It was the only okay. thing that I made that I put in the book just because it sounded so crazy. But don't try it at home. <laughs> well, I did just read about um, somewhere, and I, I, don't, I forget where, uh, someone's making bread out of cricket flour. 
Um, because yeah, of the increased you, you protein, can do it. and I uh-huh. think if you you know mix sweets out of it, chocolate and and brownies and things like that, you really can't tell it's cricket. And it's got oh. high protein and it's yeah. sustainable and it's wonderful. But I don't know why would you eat something that on its own tastes awful. Right. <laughs> you know? I think I will pass on the cricket noodles. Funky's okay for wine, but not for noodles. <laughs> it doesn't work for me. Um, so. All right, so anything that has a starch or grain base that you can boil. Now, do they have to be boiled before they're eaten to be a noodle? That, so that's one of your that's part of your definition, right? Well, well, let me let me address this historically. You know, there's there's this thing in ancient Rome they called tracta. Uh, which means drawn out, so it probably almost definitely is rolled into a long sheet. And the recipes that describe it, like in Apicius and other places, say crumble it up and throw it in. Now, is that a thickener? Is it a cracker? So this is acting like sort of like a breadcrumb would mm-hmm. to thicken it? Or do they really just mean break up this long pasta thing and, you know, and you'll have a nice soup with some substance and pasta in it. And I don't think anyone can really answer that question huh. um, because, the, because making tracta is no one knows it was it baked in a big, like, like flat cracker or was it dried and then reconstituted in water so it's a kind of noodle. Um, no one no knows one that. Knows. But, the, but the other word that is really kind of makes me think it may very well have been a pasta is the word laganai right. comes right out of Greek. And it, I was going to ask you about that. Lasagna. Right. And, you know, if you make a lasagna out of a dry um, sheet of flour that's been baked, it works wonderfully. I mean, it's great. And you wouldn't say, oh, that's not lasagna because it's not a boiled noodle. Mm-hmm. Well, and even um, there are recipes using uh, for a type of cannelloni and using crepes. And people right. think they're eating noodles. Well, basically, right, they right, are. Right. And in fact, way. there are things even that are, uh, gosh, they're like sort of very flat crepes that are sliced up and thrown into soup, um, mm-hmm. like they do with, with uh, Tafelspitz in, in Austria. Now, I didn't include things like that, because that seems not to be a noodle for some reason. I don't know why. Well, oh, interesting. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your book and some of the recipes and, and reasons why you did all that. In, in, in a little bit, we're going to take a short break, and when we come sure. back, we'll talk more about noodle soup. Come for the food, stay for the friends. Fine Diners Over 40 is a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Fine Diners Over 40 appreciate food as art, as cultural adventure, as scientific experiment, and best of all, food as an opportunity to take pleasure in the company of others. Join them for culinary and social adventures in New York and Seattle. Food may be the main attraction at Fine Diners Over 40 events, but it is the friendly and interesting members who carry the day. Join them for an evening of fine dining, fun, and stimulating conversation. While enjoying innovative tasting menus by first-rate chefs, you'll talk movies, theater, pets, sports, travel, and more. Epicurus said it best. We should look for someone to eat and drink with before looking for something to eat and drink. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. Oh, 
Hi, we're back. I'm talking with Ken Albala, whose newest book is called Noodle Soup. And we're talking a lot about noodles in history. And Ken, um, of course, in noodles way back when were, were hand-pulled, if you want to use the expression pulled or hand-cut, um, in, in the East, of course, the Asian noodles were pulled. Um, can you talk a little bit about that between what, what the pulled noodles and what that, how that differs from what we know of, let's say, pasta, where it's rolled out and rolled out and rolled out and then cut? Sure. Well, I looked at, I've seen people do it, you know, in, in um, Chinese restaurants where they have this long skein and they jump, twist it around and then they stretch it and they jump up around and it's, and it's beautiful to watch. Right. It's really, really difficult to do. <laughs> I think it will take a lifetime. Um, I got okay at it. I can almost, I can, you know, I can't get really, really super thin ones without it sticking together, but I can, I can do a decent pulled noodle like that. But I thought, you know, all right, I'm not going to put this in the book because if I'm not, if I can't master it in several years, I don't, I don't think it's fair to put it in there. But there are other noodles that are very similar and actually taste exactly the same that you can do. Um, by pulling each individual strand. And what I didn't realize is that the, if you look on, on like YouTube or any place like that, they're, they're, they don't tell you very crucial steps in it. One is that you have to put as much water as you possibly can get into that flour. Um, unlike most doughs where you add a little flour to it to keep it dry and then because you want to roll it out and not have it stick, this one you actually want to keep putting water in so it's very, very loose dough. Uh, and then you need to let it rest like mm. a full six hours or so before you can pull it. So, mm. so those are absolutely crucial. I don't think using um, an alkaline is, is essential. It gives it a nice slippery texture. So you can use, um, you know, pengui or uh, they make, um, you know, there are all sorts of various alkaline solutions that are made that, that I have, in my experience, I've sometimes used a little too much and burned my mouth with it. Yeah. So I'm very apprehensive about using that. And, I, and actually, I don't like the, the kind of soapy alkaline taste. So if there's a little hint in there and it's slightly yellowish, that's fine with me. A little slippery, too. Um, but you can leave it out entirely. So what I did basically was do what's called a lagman, which comes from Central Asia and, um, you know, is, is found in many, many countries all through there. And the only major difference is that you're making a, uh, a very, very well-kneaded dough, probably about a half an hour um, to really pull wow. those glutens out, uh -huh. and a very wet dough, and you're letting it, you're rolling it out, and then I cut it into strips and just leave it for about six hours or even overnight and then they pull like magic you could you could just pick it up in fact there's a video on youtube if anyone wants to see just look at uh, pulled noodles for beginners it's not traditional in china but there are other places that do it that way and in fact i saw someone in um in uh, bratislava doing that and i and i stood there like in amazement and the woman thought <laughs> they're they're just noodles what are you looking at and i said i'd have to learn how to do this so it's <laughs> it's it's not um it's not the big noodle dads with the whole swinging around and twisting it but it is actually traditional in so many places yeah it's it's interesting that you mentioned they did it in bratislava and yet and yet we know they did it in China. They do it or have done it in China for a long time and Japan. And this is the, the thing that amazes me how, well, it's like flatbread pizza and noodles. These cultures all over the world, it just, you know, they all have some form of noodle. And many of them end up being quite the same and, you know, maybe just a different shape. I know you mentioned the alkaline solution. I did a, um, a show with a, um, a young man who wrote the history of ramen and he was describing the noodles and, and like even the Sun Noodle Company, where they, they do add a little bit of 
alkaline, a little baking soda, something to the water. It gives it that springiness yeah. that, you know, without, as you were describing, without, I guess, maybe having to let the gluten develop on its own for all that time. Yeah, and I've spoken to people who do, who um, use it, uh, you know, professionals who say, yeah, well, that's cheating because <laughs> it does <laughs> loosen up the noodles a little. Yeah. Um, and that the really traditional way is actually not to use that. Um, and there's various different kinds. Some of them are like potassium carbonate. Some are a mixture of various other stuff. Um, I don't think baking soda on its own works, but if you bake the baking soda, this is a, a trick Harold McGee figured out, you actually pop off, it becomes sodium carbonate instead of sodium oh. bicarbonate, I uh-huh. think. So you kill some of that uh, that metallic taste a little bit? Well, you're changing it chemically. You're chemical, right, it, that's then it right. will work. Yeah. Um, but but I in my experience, every now and then I'll make it and burn my tongue. You know, you just like sear your tongue <laughs> with the alkaline, and I not a flavor I love. Yeah. You know, it's such a, a versatile food, and the industry just grew like crazy. I mean, there are, you know, uh, noodle companies, uh, you know, producing noodles all over the place. Did Was there as rapid a growth, do you know, in, um, in the East, in the Asian countries, as there has been in the West? Well, you know, the industrialization of noodles happened everywhere in the world, and in many places, it made noodles available that were not before. Like, like if I, I mean, ramen itself is a great example of this. Since um, they were invented, well, there were there was there are kinds of instant noodles, obviously, long before. But the ones that you think of in a package is Momofuku Ando, who um, fried them first. Right. <laughs> so then yeah. they're they're sort of pre-cooked, and then you just add water, and you don't have to actually boil it for a long time. But they show up in the most interesting places. Like you would never think in India, they, there are stalls on the street where they sell ramen, and people love them. And they put sort of Indian you know, spices and things on them. But it's definitely not a traditional thing in India, you know, noodle soup at all. Um, so, so I would say, you know, the industrialization of noodles really made people, well, not make them at home anymore, <laughs> you know, with, with a few exceptions. Um, Italians, you know, so they, they depend on dried pasta also. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the companies there are really big and powerful. And, you know, in the U.S., we've always been eating industrial pasta. So it's, it, it has kind of made the traditions of hand-making noodles um, threatened, I think. That's, that's part of my motivation for writing the book in the first place. Well, because that's, it's really, really it, it, easy to make. <laughs> well, I mean, this, this move to, I don't know if it's a whole artisanal movement or whatever, but suddenly, you know, Americans discovering, oh, hand, you know, like fresh-made pasta. Oh, that's good, too. You know, and the next thing you knew, everyone was buying pasta machines. Everyone was making pasta. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, well, you know, I have nothing against dried pasta. No, I think well, it's wonderful. Are, it's convenient. Depends there on the sauce. delicious, delicious forms of dried pasta. Yeah, but um, but everyone thinks the only alternative to all these dried pastas is the crank machine and a flat, <laughs> you know, kind of pasta. But that's not true. You can you can just take a bowl of flour, pour water into it, and pinch pieces, and you know, throw them into the water, and you've got pasta. Right. Excellent. So tell me about why, how you got into the book. I mean, you you're all you you. I, I follow you, I know. You always are experimenting with breads, uh, building your own bread oven, your, uh, you know, yeah. different ingredients <laughs> well, and travels. It really was a mistake. I mean, I tell people that I don't choose my topics, they choose me, and mm. that was literally the case here. Um, I, had, I was in, teaching at Boston University and um, had an apartment there in a you know, big dorm that had a beautiful kitchen without a single pot or utensil in it. 
And I thought, I'm not going to spend six weeks here without cooking. I would go crazy, <laughs> especially for breakfast. So I, I just walked down. This is Commonwealth Avenue. Walked right down to the, a little Asian grocery store there, bought a tiny pot, and saw ramen and thought, I'll try this. You know, maybe, I don't know. I just, for whatever reason, I'd never ate it in, in college. And... Um, it was wonderful. It was like a sudden revelation. I thought, where have you been all my life? And I thought I could, you know, add some vegetables and some shrimp or something. And then it dawned on me, why am I eating this stuff out of a package when I could make the ramen myself and make other noodles? And I got home and just kind of got hooked doing it every single morning. So this was probably, I don't know, two and a half years or so <laughs> that I had noodle soup every morning for breakfast and, you know, had a, an enormous you know, um, stock of stock in my freezer of, you know, shrimp shell stock and crab stock and fish fumet and beef and pork and every kind of stock on earth, which was, which is fun. And then I just, you know, defrost one, make up a batch of noodles, you know, 20 minutes or so and throw in whatever, you know, sometimes leftovers or fresh vegetables. And it was really good. Um, I mean, I have to say, I've, um, I sort of OD'd on it, <laughs> you know, after, after a few, several years, it just, I can't eat it now, <laughs> now for breakfast. Well, it's, it's, all, it's a big breakfast, if you think yeah. about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, but I mean, as you, as you said, it's, it's healthy. Um, if you put, depending on what you put in, if you put, you know, a lot of fresh vegetables in it, it's great. Right, it's exactly. No, it's just, uh, what happened is, you know, you, I mean, you guys, you can imagine what happens if you carbo load every morning for <laughs> yeah. several years. Yeah, you just, Yeah, you put on weight. So, <laughs> right. Um, so then you went and started experimenting with a lot of different, as we talked earlier, a lot of different ingredients, a lot of different methods. Uh, anything that you have derived from all that experimentation as far as uh, favorites, uh, what, I don't know, what should and shouldn't be made? Or <laughs> I don't think anything shouldn't be made. Um, I think that, uh, gosh, there's so many different kinds of flour out there that are um, delicious in themselves. And, and, I, and people tend to think of pasta as a blank canvas. You know, that the pasta is the neutral flavor, and then you throw other flavors onto it mm -hmm. and make something interesting. But I really love putting flavor into noodles, you know, whether it's, it's herbs or spices or um, other... Even there's a, there's a Chinese vegetable, uh, Chinese noodle that is made of fish, which is really fascinating. Mm. But, but I think, you know... Um, Getting the flavor into the noodle and then flavoring your broth and flavoring you, there are just all sorts of different layers and textures of flavor that you can get. Um, and I also got sort of carried away with arranging the bowl. Um, you know, sometimes people just dump everything into a bowl and say, there, it's soup, you know, it's all going to get mixed up anyway. But I really liked the idea of having the noodles on one side and a little, you know, fan of, of some thin slices of meat on another and vegetables arranged in one place, maybe a, you know, soft-boiled egg on another. And it's, it, you know, you eat with your eyes. And I think uh -huh. choosing the right bowl having a favorite pair of chopsticks that you use that are, you know, and a good spoon to, I, I think those are, those make the whole aesthetic experience so much fuller that um, it's, it's an art really, you know, and I, and I totally got carried away with that and with photographing them, you know, I'm not a photographer, so I just, I bought a Canon camera and learned how to use it and really got into the styling and the, you know, images. And I think that they look good in the book. I'm very, very oh, pleased I think and I'm that amazed I, that they let me get away with, you know, like 85 images in a, in a small book like yeah, that. Yeah, I was impressed to, to learn that, in fact, you did the photo, the photography, too. Even though I know I, I followed, your, you know, the, 
your experimentations that you would post online, and I knew you could take good pictures of them, but I was impressed that they were your photographs in the book. Thanks. Yeah, they are. Yeah. What I did generally is I took one version on my iPhone that I could post on Facebook, and then another version with, <laughs> with your camera, camera that I right. used in the book. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, back to, yeah, and you seem, it seems that, well, you were, you did travel to, um, was this for research for the book, or was this after you got so involved in the noodles. Didn't you travel to Japan and, and experiment with ingredients? I did, yeah. I mean, it was it was for a conference, but um, it was in Fukuoka, which is where the, you know, tonkatsu ramen comes from, mm-hmm. Hakata, is mm-hmm. one part of, of that city. So, I, so yeah, definitely, <laughs> that, that was the reason for going there. Um, so I ate a whole lot of noodles when I was there, but I went also very recently, um, long, weird story, but someone saw on Facebook, I think, that I had made katsuobushi at home from scratch. And they said, oh, can we come to your house and film you doing this for a Japanese TV program? And I was like, oh, okay, why not? You know, and I did the whole procedure from beginning to end, which is basically, you know, um, smoking the fish and then drying it and then shaving it to make dashi stock, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very impressed with this. I apparently, apparently I, they didn't, I, they weren't absolutely clear that this was a competition, but apparently I won. <laughs> they brought me to Japan um, just a couple of months ago to see it being done the traditional way. And as it turns out, I was completely and utterly wrong in the way that I was doing it. But since that time, um, I have done it uh, with a, a Bonito, slightly smaller than Skipjack Tuna, but um, got it all correct and even got the mold, the uh, Aspergillus um, um, mold on it, which is essential also for drying and for getting that umami flavor. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's great. Um, I'm also experimenting now with doing it out of, uh, I have one made out of a pork loin, I have one made out of duck breast, another, I mean, just, you know, done the exact same way and then mm-hmm. shaved to make a broth, which was just really instant. So in a weird way, I can't, I haven't really stopped, <laughs> you know, you never really stop a book. <laughs> you you finish, you stop because the deadline is there and you right. hand it to them. And then you keep keep experimenting and keep tasting. So I, I've, um, right now I've got um, a rice fermented rice flour noodles sitting on my counter. I've got a nuka bed I just started last week to make Japanese pickles, which I think will really go interestingly in a soup, I'm hoping. Um, We'll see. All right. So it's not, for you, it's not just the noodle, it's the soup. So it's the broth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a whole chapter just on different types of broth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything that would define uh, or differentiate um, a noodle that's destined for a soup or broth from a noodle that's going to be just sauced? Well, there are, it depends on where you are in the world. If you go to Italy and say, oh, I'm putting spaghetti in a soup, they will look at you like you're crazy because there's no way to eat that, you know, in, a, in, in Italy, uh, because, you know, a fork and knife would make a mess in a soup because they just don't have chopsticks. That's, that's why. So, so there are you know, traditional combinations that make sense according to certain cultures. But I think if it's a noodle, put it in a soup. <laughs> There's no reason not to. It just depends on how you eat it. You know, there's things like um, tarhanas or trahanas in Greece, which are these little nubbins made of flour mixed with yogurt or sour milk, and then they're dried, and they kind of look like, sort of like Israeli couscous, which is, of course, a pasta also. Mm-hmm. And But they're sour and just, just wonderfully heart and lovely, but, um, and they sometimes put them in soup, like in a chicken broth, um, but 
I think you could eat that any way you wanted, really, you know, in any kind of broth. I've, I've even combined it with fish stock, which I don't think they would ever think of in Greece, but it was great. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I do believe noodles also deserve to be eaten with just some oil or some good sauce. Um, I love them in soups too. So I'm going to I'm going to, you know, lean on the on the other side, on the western side a little bit too. Um, I think that they can both be enjoyed equally, but I I see where you have just gotten totally entrenched in the whole eastern um, method of, of the noodles and the soups. And I, that's yeah. wonderful. I think that's that's terrific. And it made for a beautiful book and it made for wonderful experimentations. It's amazing. Is there? Can you think of a culture that doesn't have some form of noodle, or as you said, like a couscous, you know, is a type of a you know wheat pasta? Can you think of a culture that doesn't have? In well, you mentioned India. Yeah, there there but, are cultures where they're not very important. Um, I, India doesn't really have many um, indigenous noodle soups. There's things that sort of look like them. Idiapams are like a little little bundle of noodles that stick together, and you eat it with your hands. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that may be that may be the key to why some places don't have a lot of noodle soup. In Africa, there's not a whole lot. Um, it's because if you eat with your hands a soup. <laughs> eating soup with your hands, putting your hands in the soup is just like is dreadful because it's hot and you mm-hmm. burn your fingers and mm-hmm. you know. So I think that's that may be why they're not as important there. And then you know, in the Americas, there are noodle soups since the you know Spanish arrived, but they're not um, they're not really indigenous forms. Interesting. Yeah, it is a, a beautiful book and certainly mouth watering and and. Uh, worthy of experimentation from some of the recipes, and um, and your techniques are are great in it, and I I think that noodles are something that we should hold in esteem and not just be as you said just the the sponge or the you know the neutral base for anything else. I think that they are a wonderful part of our edible culture, and. I thank you so much, Ken. It was a truly interesting information and a, a wonderful book. The book, this is Ken Albala speaking again, and the book is Noodle Soup, Recipes, Techniques, and Obsession. <laughs> we got to say yes, it was definitely an obsession. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. Okay, thanks again. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.